Good morning. This is Claudia Shambaugh, your host, welcoming you to the February 28th edition of Ask a Leader. Today, both of my guests have one essential quality in common, both real from the tectonic shift in political leadership on the national level. Southern California Director of the California High-Speed Rail, Michelle Bame, returns to bring us the latest on the high-speed rail project north of us amidst a new national political landscape. And in the second half, I'm proud to introduce you to Alicia Rivera, a phenomenal community activist with the Communities for a Better Environment, who's organizing around those toxic refineries in the Wilmington neighborhood of Los Angeles. It's a really fine continuation of the grassroots efforts that I've been so pleased and privileged to cover over these last three straight weeks. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Returning to Ask a Leader is my first guest, Michelle Bame, the Southern California Regional Director for the California High-Speed Rail Authority and a board member of both the Los Angeles and Orange County chapters of the Women's Transportation Seminar. Michelle Bame oversees all aspects of project development in the region. She's nearly 20 years of experience in transportation planning and policy analysis in both the public and private sectors. In addition to providing some essential updates, she'll check in fresh from last week's Young Women in STEM Careers. She's fully conversant with all segments of the system. She's joining us today as on previous occasions from Los Angeles. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Michelle Bain. Thank you very much. It's great to be here this morning. Well, it's, it's always good to have you back on. Since the last time you were on the show, I believe that was last April, we've seen some major political upheaval on the national level. While California has returned to a Democratic supermajority in our state legislature and the governor's office, it's the exact opposite of the national, on everyone's minds is how is the shift in national leadership affecting the project? Today, uh, we continue to work on the project and make the progress that we had planned and that we discussed last April. So at this point, um, you know, we are in uh, construction on the project, as you know, in the Central Valley. We have 10 construction sites now, both in Fresno and Madeira County, and uh, those uh, we continue to make progress um, on, on the work up there on the bookends, both going north to San Francisco and south down to Anaheim. We continue to make progress on the preliminary work that needs to be done to complete the environmental documentation phase of the project. So at this point, uh, we are continuing to move forward. And so how much of the shift in the national leadership was anticipated? Well, you know, I think all of us that watch uh, watch what's going on, you know, both on the local and the national level have seen and sensed, you know, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of churn here in, in the aughts, right, in the, 20, the beginning of the 21st century uh, in order to kind of come up with uh, how we're going to approach this century, you know, from a policy standpoint and a political standpoint. So I think everybody's been very, um, had their eyes wide open in terms of taking a look at what the possibilities were and, you know, considering and planning for any eventuality. When you're an agency like the High Speed Rail Project, we're in this for the long haul. Right. Not only does it take multiple years to build and bring a project like ours online, but we're planning this project for a 100 or 200 year lifespan. And so we really take the long view and understand that there are going to be ebbs and flows in the process over that time, but that, you know, our goals and objectives are much broader and longer than what's going on at any one given moment. Did you have any strategies in place to 
to work with the Central Valley Republican <laughs> congressional delegation? Well, you know, if you take a look at, at infrastructure yes. in the United States and, and the to. history of infrastructure, it has traditionally not been a political topic. Infrastructure is very, very critical to our ability to not only, you know, take care of the people that we have today, but to plan for um, the increases in the population that will come over the decades to come. And so, uh, you know, we believe that good policy will ultimately trump politics and that people will ultimately understand and embrace the fact that in investing in infrastructure is really a win-win, right? It's a win when you're, you're investing in it because you're creating jobs and expanding the technology available at the time, and it's a win when, it is, uh, when it's constructed because it serves the purpose that it was meant for. So, um, for instance, you know, in the Central Valley right now, with our construction active, the unemployment rate has dropped dramatically uh, as our project has come online. And okay. so it's gone from double digits to single digit percentage uh, with the advent of our project coming online. And so really going to war with infrastructure is like going to war with jobs. I mean, it just isn't good policy. Well, with due respect, just make sure we could be a little more specific. When you say from double to single digit, it could be just from 10 to 9 percent unemployment rate. Do you have a little bit better sort of indication? Because and I understand it's it's the construction sector, it's the service sector, it's everything. There's multiplier effects with infrastructure expenditures. So do you have a little bit better idea of how much the unemployment rate has changed? Yeah, it was in the sort of the 20 percent range, and now it's under 10. Okay. Well, that's pretty, that is pretty significant. Well, while we're talking about the, the top leadership, are you approaching the U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Elaine Chao, in any special ways? So, obviously, with a project like ours, like any of the large transportation agencies, we have lots of business with the Department of Transportation. So, in that regular business, we uh, speak with all levels within those agencies in order to make sure that we can do our business. So, at this point, we, you know, we would approach her with the same respect and cooperative approach that we would approach anybody with. So... In an ever sharper relief is the competition for infrastructure investments, namely that there's a three point, this is reported in, I'm thinking the LA Times like two days ago, or New York Times, $3.6 trillion national backlog, and California's got a $136 billion backlog, that's roads, levees, bridges, ports, train, public transit systems, and we've heard so much about dams now with the Oroville Dam situation, water storage and recycling projects, military and veterans, and emergencies operation facilities. This, and the list of priorities came out in gov with Governor Brown's office. D at that, the list I just gave didn't include the Governor Brown's priorities of immigration detention facilities and power plants. So how are you reconciling this the tension that the backlog overall of infrastructure is getting with the the scarce funds for keeping the high-speed rail project going well certainly all of that infrastructure is very very important um, and the issue is is you really can't only invest in one type of infrastructure at any one given time you can't only address the emergency you have to address the long-term state of good repair and modernization that's needed for not only the transportation system, but water, you know, et cetera, utilities. Um, so we don't, as policymakers, we don't have the luxury to only do one thing at a time. We have to be able to walk and chew gum. And so it's really incumbent upon us then to figure out and look at in the 21st century, what are the ways and sources that we can fund these things and are there more creative things that we can do? And there are things that are on the radar right now that are being talked about uh, very broadly, including the public-private partnerships, um, and design build and other mechanisms to either change the amount of time it takes to do a project or expand our ability to access private funds 
or private financing to help advance projects in the near term. And so all of those things are being looked at. And again, as policymakers across the infrastructure world, we have to come together to look at these issues and begin to start to look at solving them in, in tandem with one another rather than solving them separately and looking at who can fill uh, a, a discrete-sized bucket the fastest, we have to learn to grow the size of the overall bucket. <sighs> Talking and uh, chewing gum at the same time, I'm sure there's certain leadership styles that are, we're wondering whether the, the, the chewing gum is not there, or maybe it's the chewing gum and tweeting as opposed to doing the thinking there. It's sort of a, it's a it, it, these are tough times. My guest, if you've just joined us, folks, is Michelle Bame. She's the Southern California Regional Director for the California High-Speed Rail Authority here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. So back to my guest, Michelle Bame. We're talking about sort of the whole infrastructure jungle here. <laughs> Vying for those money. So uh, speaking of the infrastructure investments, tell us what kinds of commitments that the California High-Speed Rail has made to quote, implement a statewide rail modernization plan in local and regional rail lines to meet this, where we are right now, the state's 21st century transportation needs. Well, the state of California obviously has embarked upon this statewide rail modernization program, and the California High-Speed Rail Project is a partner with that. And what specifically is really interesting about that is, is really here in the bookends. In Southern California and in Northern California, um, we are really able to take a look at, you know, a win-win-win situation. We are planning to bring high-speed rail service into the corridor that hosts our rail service today. So right now, we have a rail corridor running from Burbank down to Anaheim. We've got Metrolink. We've got the Surfliner service in there. We've got freight service in there today. And so we are going to bring high-speed rail service into that corridor in the future. We will be operating our trains in there in 2029. And in order to do that, basically, we get to address the state of good repair within that corridor because the things that we're doing, we're going to be making sure that the, where the roads cross the corridor, those are grade separated to address safety issues. Um, we're going to be, you know, reconstructing parts of the corridors and the tracks. So we'll be putting in new modern tracks. We're going to be putting in new signals and systems into the corridor, 21st century signals and systems, so that all the trains will be able to sense where the other trains are. Uh, we'll be able to sense whether or not people or cars have encroached or animals have encroached into and in front of trains in the rail corridor. And we will be able to send warnings to the trains in seismic events in order to slow down the trains and stop them. All of these modern features of a rail corridor will now be operating for all services in these corridors, not just high-speed rail. So that's really a, you know, a specific example of how we are partnering with the state to address the statewide rail modernization. And when we do this, we should be able to run more service, more frequent service at different times for Metrolink users, for the Surfliner users, bring high-speed rail service into the corridor, and also improve our goods movement. Because the more goods that we can put in our rail corridors, the fewer goods we are putting on our highways. And that allows our highways to do other work, not the host of the goods. Actually, can you tell us what the carbon footprint of moving it on rails versus moving it on, on roads, is that an improvement? Yes, that, that, is, that is definitely an improvement. When you're talking about, you know, with the high speed, it's all electric. Uh, but right now, again, back to your statewide rail mod question, right. you know, high-speed rail has invested many millions of dollars in Metrolink's purchase of new, four lo new Tier 4 locomotives that reduce the uh, greenhouse gas footprint of the emissions of their trains by about 85 percent 
over their tier zero locos. So all of this, uh, all of these improvements actually have a corollary benefit when it comes to the environment. Okay. If you can move an entire lane of traffic, for instance, on the rail, onto the rail off of the I-5, for instance, that parallels that, that, that makes a dramatic difference. And some of the stuff that we're looking at, we would be able to have the capacity, you know, of moving, you know, thousands of people per hour through this corridor, uh, which would then produce that, that corollary effect that, you know, there would be thousands of people per hour that wouldn't need to be on the freeway. But I'm, I'm just thinking, too, the carbon footprint of moving freight and and I guess the, and the delivery time is perhaps shortened if with with the rail versus with. Absolutely. It, it has the same effect for the freight market as it does for the the passenger market. If we're able to, you know, move those containers off of trucks and put them onto the rail corridor, that dramatically reduces the, the, the footprint. Well, it's time for more centerfolds, the transit centerfolds, for to give people more to think about here about the what the future, is, how bright it could be. Well, let's let's talk then. Um, there, the citizens groups. We'll, we'll talk about several aspects of funding. The citizens groups, they're consolidating around opposing the project with the, the California High Speed Rail Accountability. Are they? about substantive changes to the project, or are they just about trying to jam up your financial works? You know, I, I can't speculate or speak on their behalf. You know, when you're doing a big infrastructure project, and all owners know this, it's very, very difficult, particularly in a highly populated area, to come up with plans um, that don't concern some folks. Uh, so, I, you know, I can't really speak to what their motivations might be, but what I can say is today, you know, none of their activity has ever stopped the high-speed rail project from moving forward. You know, no, the uh, judges have never issued a stay on our project, so we've been able to continue to make progress. And, of course, we continue to, to try to reach out across the table and come up with ways that, you know, that we can get something that is a benefit for our future generation. So tell us what are some concessions that High Speed Rail's made to San Joaquin's stakeholders, the farmers and the residents? Well, I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's, it's um it isn't characterized like that. Okay. I mean, when you do an environmental document, it's a very specific scientific undertaking sure. that identifies what the impacts of your project are, and then you mitigate what those impacts are. So uh, what we are doing up and down the project is addressing the specific issues that we see through the scientific study um, and finding ways to address them. You know, oftentimes, you know, you, you're talking about the roads that cross the rail corridor, and you need to make sure that, you know, some of those roads still connect, that they don't have to cul-de-sac at the rail corridor because emergency traffic needs to go across. And so that's where a grade separation would come in. Right, which you mentioned earlier. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're looking at you know, the agricultural land and, you know, going through agricultural land. And so you need to make sure that the owners can get back and forth across the rail line, either under it or over it, right, in order to be able to still farm their land. Is You're that pretty looking hard at to do? issues like preservation, right. of course, of agricultural land in the Central Valley. And we have a program where we have purchased and are setting aside some agricultural land at, in perpetuity as part of our project. So, like that's a land the kind trust? Of thing. Is it like a land trust, Michelle Bain? The land set aside for egg use, is that like a land trust of sorts? Yes, correct. Okay, okay, good. Well, so the high-speed rails budget, what is the current price tag uh, adjusted from, was it the $64 billion that, that I read most recently? Yeah, so that is the current uh, that is the current budget, the $64 billion. That was released with our 2016 business plan. Every two years we release a business plan and we update basically the approach we're taking to complete the project and the overall capital cost. So 
Uh, the $64 billion in 2016 was down from uh, the higher 60s in 2014. So we've taken, you know, we're on a good trajectory at this point, which reflects the fact that we've been doing a lot of good planning work, so we have a lot more specific knowledge about what we're going to build today than, you know, we did 10 years ago. So tell us, where are all the sources of funding at this point for that tab? Yes, yeah, so um, anybody who's listening, I would welcome them to go onto the website. We do have a business plan tab there that has all of the details of the, the budgeting. Right now, the budgets we have, we had stimulus funds from the federal government, which were in the process of funding the last of right, right. now. Right. We have cap and trade funds from the state of California, and we have uh, the bond funds from the state of California. We've also described basically, you know, the fact that we expect that we will have private investment that will support the completion of the project or help support either with financing or capital the completion of the project moving forward. And we've kind of laid that out and, and how we see those percentages in that business plan. So the status of the Kevin Mullen-sponsored Assembly Bill 1889, which was to sort of benefited by the actual language of the proposition that was approved by the California population, uh, that this was, this, there are vehicles within this particular bill whereby the legislature would enact, would enact legislation to provide the Peninsula Corridor Joint Powers Board with necessary tools to explore options. I'm, this, is, this is a lift out of the, the measure. To provide the Peninsula Corridor Joint Powers Board with the necessary tools to explore options that would help Caltrain obtain a dedicated source of funding. So the line went dead as far as I was able to track any kind of m mainstream media coverage of this. It was on Christmas when I last read about it. I couldn't find what is the status of that. It's being challenged by that California High Speed Rail accountability opposition group. So where is the Assembly Bill 1889 at this point? Well, I mean, I think you've just summed it up, right, that that it was passed and that, you know, that there is a challenge to it right now. And we'll see, you know, we'll see where that goes. Again, they haven't issued a stay or any restrictions associated with that. So, you know, I think that the um, the legislative process and the legal process will just continue to, to play out. Okay, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is returning to this program, Michelle Baim. She's the Southern California Regional Director for the California High Speed Rail, and I'm always getting my wide-eyed questions. She tolerates all of them with uh, what's what's going on with this huge project. So the uh, you've you've given us an update on the construction schedule and the the you're 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 buying properties you're doing title searches you're doing the back the first step is the eis I, i'm going backwards on this right now but so um our is is the learning curve flattening out anywhere on this getting the public on board getting the pro the property acquired we continue to make process improvements and progress and uh, we have been able to obtain the, the pro, you know, the right of way that we need uh, for our construction progress in the Central Valley. It, you know, as we talked about before, yes. when you're working on a project of this magnitude, it's just very, very complicated. Right. What we find is, is that, you know, early, often, and free, you know, regular conversation is really what it takes with the public and inevitably i mean you know one of the things that's so magnificent about our country is is that you can't necessarily get two people in a room and have them agree on everything and so you know we're never going to have everybody agree with you know the all of the all of the components of the project or all of the things that we're doing but we can have them understand it and that's our obligation and our job to make sure that we have crafted a public outreach process that makes sure that people understand what they're do what we're doing and what the ramifications of what we're doing are to them. Real 
the real information, the real science behind it, not, you know, the myth or the fear, but really boil down what those fears are to exact specifics on what the impacts are. And, and usually when we engage in that conversation, um, we have people who are willing to work with us to figure out problems. Well, I'm wondering about that, that if there's a kind of a split decision with any one particular constituent that they, they're hardwired to oppose this project that looks like a real boondoggle in their minds, but maybe they secretly, privately, or after they've gotten the dog and pony down from what high-speed rail rolls out, that they say, well, I can't wait to jump on that train anyway. I mean, do you get a little bit of a mixed, a split decision from constituents? I think you do. You know, I think you really do, because the hard part is building the project, right? And then once yep. the project is operational, you can point to the benefits or, you know, the ease of movement that it offers you. But during construction, you can't see that. All you can see is, you know, work going on and things of that nature. And so, you know, I think if you could wave a wand and just miraculously have <laughs> high-speed rail appear, many people would be very, very excited to ride it, right? But. Yeah. We have to get there, and during the getting there, that's where the questions come in. Setting that table, cooking the meal, all that work in the shopping, all that sort of thing. Well, so are there any public meetings we need to know about today that are coming up, especially in the Orange County vicinity? So we will be doing some outreach coming up in the next several months for our Los Angeles to Anaheim section. Uh, we're working on that, and we're due to go out and talk with people again with a little more specifics about what we're doing. And that's, that's honestly been kind of the fun of working on this project is every time we go out and talk to the public, we have an additional level of detail to share with them. It's kind of like, when, you know, for those of us who wear glasses, going to the eye doctor, right? right? And if you look at the eye chart, right, when you take your glasses off, you can't even read the top line, right? And then they start Good, and you can read the next line down, the next line down, the next line down, additional detail, right? right. That's what we've been doing over the course of the last four years. So every time we go out and talk to the public, we've got this additional level of detail about where the project would be or what the project features would be or how we would address the local roads or other aspects in the area. And that's really been exciting to kind of walk with the public through that process to get those details. In a lot of places, we were able early on to make, you know, changes that really addressed almost all of the concerns. Okay. That isn't the case everywhere. Right. I, I want to stress that. We still right. have a lot of locations where, you know, we still have a lot of work to do. But the way that we come up with these best ideas is really by working together. Is that in Central Valley, or are you talking about maybe the more urban areas that there's? Yes, the urban areas, obviously, where yeah. we've got, you know, more density, there yes. are many, many more issues to take a look at, you know, in a very much smaller setting. So, yeah, no, I was speaking specifically about some of the work we're doing here in Southern California and that, you know, when we look at our maps of, of what our plans are, you yes. know, there are areas where, you know, we got it. We were able early on to, to, you know, address issues, and and we've got a great plan. We've got some areas where there's still a lot of concern, and we still have work to do, and we continue to focus there. Is that San Fernando? San Fernando is certainly one of those areas, okay. yes. Yeah. Well, so, well, folks, you can always follow the updates on the forums. Where I don't know if there's any specific dates that Michelle Bain can give us, but it's at the CAHSR blog.com is where you can get a sort of a running water cooler coverage of what's going on as well as uh, just the general website c-a-h-s-r dot let's see that one would be dot org though so I, the dot com is the blog there so last week was the national engineer week and amidst this you'd been on a, the workshop circuit recruiting and interacting with students targeting girls about stem careers what do you want to accomplish with this you know, I just want to give them the opportunity that, that I've had in my life and open up potentially new fields or new ideas for them. Um, you know, when I was, uh, when I was young, 
uh, my my mom and dad would pile me and my sister into the back of, of the station wagon with the wood decals, and we would drive several miles from where we were living at that time, and we would drive by this big building that exists today down in Seal Beach. It's a big gray building, and it looks like it's got barn doors on it. And when I was a child, sometimes those barn doors would be open, and they built the stages of the Apollo rockets there. And so I had that really real connection, right, to, like, you could do big things. You can build big things. And when I go and, you know, talk with with the girls or any young people, I want to give them that same level of inspiration, that, that you can do big things, that you can build big things. Don't, you know, don't sell yourself short and really, you know, reach for the moon, reach for San Francisco, whatever it is that, that you can do. Go out and do the best you can because that will always stand you in good stead, right? right. Not all of us know what we exactly what we are going to do for the rest of our life, but all of us make our own opportunity. So as you a, do the best you can, right? Do the best you can at whatever you can do and doors open. So as um, a sort of a last question, and is there uh, some, I can see this is what you were actually saying in those workshops, but any kind of an anecdote we can close the interview with that you had with interacting with these young ladies? Yeah, no, I, I think it was, it was a lot of fun because one of the other things is to talk to them about how it's really the intersection of many different interests now that drive the world forward. So you could be working in transportation as an artist, right, right. as an expert on communicating as a contract analyst, as a lawyer. And so it's really that you don't have to think about these things in terms of you're just an engineer, and if you don't choose to be an engineer, you can't do that. Okay, that's wonderful. So I want to thank you once again, Michelle Bain, for coming on the show today. It's been a real pleasure having you on. All right, well, thank you. Thank you. Well, that was... Michelle Bain, the Southern California Director of the California High Speed Rail. And she was good to be with us one more time. We'll be right back after a station break with Alicia Rivera with the Communities for a Better Environment and what we should know about the huge public health hazard that is at the Wilmington Tesoro Refinery Plant, the largest refinery, folks, on the West Coast. Don't go away. Bela Fleck, and the track is called Outbound. Thanks for returning, staying with me, folks. My next guest here on Ask a Leader is organizer extraordinaire Alicia Rivera with the Communities for a Better Environment. Her work is based mainly in the Los Angeles neighborhood of Wilmington. That's west of Long Beach, south of Carson, for all of you looking at your, your maps right now. She'll put on your radars how this is the site of the West Coast version of the Dakota Access and Keystone Pipeline. Well, a no stranger to adversity, as a young woman, Alicia Rivera fled the Civil War in El Salvador in 1980. Her siblings and she were deported several times to Mexico as they tried to cross the border in the U.S. And after questionable treatment by the INS, it's now known as ICE, they were deported back to El Salvador. After she finally made it with her sibs to the U.S., Alicia made, became involved in educating Americans about the human rights abuses by the government of El Salvador and ending the U.S. military aid. While still undocumented, she debated the INS director and Reagan administration appointment U.S. Secretary of State Elliot Abrams. Among the many media outlets she's appeared on six, is 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace. She was co-founder and director of El Rescate, the first social and legal program for the Central American refugees in Los Angeles. Alicia Rivera transitioned into environmental organiz organizing in the campaign to make Texaco 
accountable for their pollution in Wilmington, California, and in the Ecuador rainforest. They're connected folks. Her work at the Communities for Better Environment since 1995 has included successfully organizing Ens La Montana, as well as several other campaigns, and opening the first CBE, we're going to say that's the shorthand from now on for the Citizens for Better Environment, the CBE pilot office in Huntington Park. More recently, she was featured in an L.A. column by L.A. Times writer Stephen Lopez, as well as in Spanish Oi edition for her work on Prop 23. She currently works in the Clean Up Green campaign to address the cumulative impact of multiple sources of pollution in Wilmington, California. Alicia received training as a stenographer, as a very young lady in San Salvador, then more training at the Los Angeles Trade Technical College and completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Interdisciplinary Studies from Cal State Dominguez Hills. All this is a model to her three children and a model for us all. She comes to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Alicia Rivera. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, I'm, you're a get, so I'm so glad you're available today because we have, it's a timely feature because of deadlines for people to contribute to a process of environmental impact review. So th this is great to have you on today. Well, Communities for a Better Environment, it's, you've got an impressive crew of legal, activist, uh, financial people that are working on, on, on a shoestring, I'm guessing. So we'll talk as we're covering the the site-specific things, maybe how the broader support for, for getting your movement uh, keeping invigorated, uh, as we talked, as I said, about this uh, specific. Your focus is on the Tesoro plant, which is the largest refiner on the West Coast. It's And we'll talk about the switch to crude oil in a bit. Let's, if you would be so kind, would you we'll take an audio stroll through Wilmington so that listeners have a pretty vivid impression of the proximity of the refinery to so many homes, playgrounds, and schools. Yes. For people who might not have an idea where Wilmington is, it's west of Long Beach and by the area of the Port of Los Angeles, which is a large complex, uh, including the Port of Los Angeles and Port of Long Beach, and it's also north from San Pedro, and this is a very small community, about 20 uh, square miles or so. However, it is one of the largest oil fields, it's the fifth largest oil field in California and in the nation, and one-third of all the gasoline and gasoline products are processed here in Wilmington. And we have five refineries processing that material. So you can imagine the uh, magnitude of the emissions that overlap over this small community that is comprised mostly of uh, Latino immigrants, about 80%, a little higher than that, and low income and poor. And that is the reason why there is so much pollution here. And we have been focusing our work in trying to make refineries accountable for their emissions and working with the regulators to set up um, a system so that uh, there are levels of pollution uh, controlling control. And currently, as you mentioned, we are fighting a refinery expansion. If this refinery expansion, which involves Tesoro Oil Refinery, which used to be Texaco, and the former BP refinery, Petroleum, yes. which now uh, is all owned by Tesoro, it would become the largest refinery uh, on the West Coast. And the goal for that merger is to store over 3.4 million barrels of crude in the vicinity of Wilmington and Carson, which are neighbor cities. And this would mostly would be 
duty, what we call duty crude, which is backing, very explosive, that is being fracked in North Dakota, and also uh, tar sands from Vancouver, Canada. Alicia Rivera, before you go into that switch to the, the heavy crude, I would like, though, for you to give us all a very vivid impression of what Wilmington residents have already had to deal with, that there's the buffers that have been allowed there are considerably minimal compared to what buffers are required in, name it, Pennsylvania or even Dallas requires a 1,500-foot buffer between the drilling, the well, their drilling sites, their, their refinery sites, and with homes. So there's a tremendous public health issue that I think I'd, uh, would be really important to to bring into sharp relief for our listeners before we go into how it gets even worse with the crude conversion. Yes, there are here in Wilmington no buffer distance requirement. In fact, in in addition to the oil drilling, to the oil refining, we have oil drilling and activities, and they are literally on the of the homes. And uh, there is no buffer distance at all, and that is one of the reasons why we, we are embarked on a campaign called Standing Together Against Neighborhood Drilling, which aims to put a buffer zone of 1,500 feet from oil drilling activities in homes and other vulnerable uh, areas such as daycare centers, schools, churches, etc. And also the restrict any restrictions for oil drilling operations uh, conditional use permits such as hours of operations noise and smells and all that uh, has not been put in practice here in Wilmington either wow. Wow. even when th- those provisions exist within the city code however they have been applied in West Los Angeles, uh, near Beverly Hills, in Hancock Park, in all that area, they put requirements of operations. And this is also, Wilmington is also part of the city of Los Angeles, so the same code and restrictions should apply here in Wilmington. Yes. And when we found that that we were being discriminated uh, and our human rights were being discriminated uh, in, in that sense, uh, our laws that we, our attorney, brought a lawsuit against the city, and we successfully have come out of it. The city decided to negotiate with us rather than going to court because they knew they were going to lose. Right. However, the uh, oil industry they have they have countersued us because they feel their argument is that they feel that they should have been part of the settlement. And so the city and us have been fighting them, and we have come out of that successfully. They were not successful in court, but they have countersuit against our youth because that lawsuit was bro- was brought up on, on behalf of the youth of Wilmington and uh, other areas where there are oil drilling extraction activities, uh, such as such as in South Los Angeles near USC. And so the industry is suing the, the youth. Over, it's, it's a slap suit. We call it a slap suit. Right, that discourages uh, and, the free and we speech. Are in that, we're in the process of fighting that. So the industry fight us for any minimum requirement, even if it's to notify community about their activities. They fight us with the regulators. Unfortunately, the, the regulators often side with the industry and not with us. So every victory we have, we have to fight, fight, and fight, uh, and put resources, and that's why I am always asking the public, if you believe that this is uh, a justice, uh, that injustice is going on, and indiscriminately against some of the communities that are low income, what we call environmental injustice, they should should consider uh, supporting our work through any means. If they have no time to put in and help us, you know, but they can also, we're always in need of donations. So that's one way to support as well. But also uh, go to our website, which is 
C for Charles, B for Boy, E for Elephant, C-A-L as California.org, and you can check there what we have of information and how to support us. We also encourage people to attend or toxic tours so yes. we can show them what it's like for people in this community to live so close to the refineries, not even a mile away from the refineries, and practically with uh, oil drilling operations in our backyards. And that way people can understand uh, or fight and support us. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Alicia Rivera. She's a community organizer with Communities for a Better Environment with a laser-like focus on the Tesoro Refinery in Wilmington neighborhood with connections to a refinery processing and transit lines all the way from Canada. We'll go into that a little bit, but we're talking right now about the health hazards of this proximity. I mean, there's a January New York Times piece, and you get a photograph. If people have you made your, if you haven't been on the toxic tour yet, there the New York Times care of their coverage was on the other side of a garage. There is a refinery apparatus there. It's it's remarkable. So Alicia Rivera, could you give us just a a little bit about the toll that this is taking the on the health and safety risks there? I mean, the incidences of asthma and cancer that have been on the rise in that area versus other neighborhoods in L.A.? Yes, the incidence of asthma here is very high. Uh, the students have, uh, uh, they, they miss school so often that it's hard for them to catch up because they can't breathe. And um, this is a very small area. In every street you go to, you find so many cases of people either having uh, cancer or having someone who has died of cancer. And it's no coincidence because of all the uh, cancer-causing chemicals that are being emitted in large amounts by by refineries. The the potency of um, the... All, all these chemicals such as benzene and yes. toluene, Ugh. which are carcinogens, um, you know, uh, overlapping, and the effect on the human system, the human body, and the organs is very, very potent. So um, it's definitely a case of environmental injustice against the community, and that's why we are... We have been fighting for many years to try to make refineries accountable and put controls on their emissions and fight it against systems that the government imposes, such as cap-and-trade, that is a system where pollution is traded and and sold in the market through credits, which allowed refineries to avoid reducing emissions. And so we are doing all this work, now fighting against this new merger project yes. by Tesoro. Let's talk about that. Oh, not, not, the, not the merger, but let's talk about that. that we are working now against the expansion, the, the conversion to the, the, the crude that's coming in from Pacific North, from North Dakota and from Canada. Yes, and everyone should be concerned about if they consider the impact of this mining of this crude and the fracking of this crude and the degradation that is is caused from the very point of extraction to the point of uh, destination at these refineries. There is pollution all the way from extraction, degradation in those communities, uh, airquakes, and the air becoming so unbreathable and the transportation of it, we have seen all the derailments of trains that are carrying these explosive flammable back in, in, in persons, uh and all over, destroying uh, the, uh, some cities such as in Alberta, Canada, and uh, Mosier. Mosier in, Vancouver, in, in Washington. Oregon. Yes, in Washington, in, on the Columbia River there, which and, was just last then, year. And uh, you know, this material is being put in regular trains that were not designed to carry this material. So uh, it, the, the uh, trucks get so hot 
uh, and because they put 80 to 100 and over 100 wagons in a train that is loaded with this heavy, heavy material the trucks can't withstand, and that's why all waterways are being so polluted. So all those people who care about the, stage, the state of our uh, climate and the calamities that we are already seeing and the destruction that is causing economically, we should care about stopping more oil extraction of these duty crudes and being refined. And our aim is to get out of fossil fuels once and for all. And we also have campaigns that have uh, uh, made possible adopting uh, rules to put one million electric vehicles on the road and uh, with enough um, discounts uh, that uh, people of low income can also afford these uh, vehicles. And so uh, we're also working through all the areas with the Department of Water and Power, which is a uh, public utility, right. to also give us more cleaner energy from cleaner sources, not from natural gas. And so we have made possible, we have pressured the DWP to promise 80% uh, clean energy uh, energy for us in, 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 in within a few years. And we're always also working with the California Public Utility Commissions, uh, and we have goals of how much reductions of carbon we're going to see by 2020, 2030, you know, in, in 2050. And so we are not only, because we're never going to be able to shut down the refinery. So what we need to do is start, start replacing the fossil fuel with cleaner energy from solar. And so we also have been working with DWP, pressuring them to give more solar uh, to people who are low income. It is terrible and sad that the county and the city of Los Angeles right. have provided subsidies for people to install solar panels. And people in Beverly Hills have been getting all these subsidies, but the people in Wilmington only get about uh, $30 for subsidies for that. So there is discrimination in that, too. So we're looking into all that and making sure that there is equity, and we have been able to get a program called Community Solar, where everyone who is low income and owns a house will be able to have solar panels, uh, a courtesy of DWP. So, Alicia Rivera, the timeliness of having you on now is to give everybody an opportunity not only to contribute time and funds to this economic justice issue, environmental justice issue, so it's both of those justices, if you could give us a little information about the way in which they can appeal to the Air Quality Management District with the current draft environmental impact report that is was being railroaded, and that's a pine used advisedly, but it was being railroaded over the holidays. I mean, it's a classic technique to run this thing through when people's minds are diverted with holidays, but where can we all get involved with that letter campaign to the AQMD? Yes, people can write regarding the draft environmental impact report of the Tesoro merger project and uh, write to the, to the staff and to the executive officer of AQMD. His name is Wayne Nastri. And also write to Mayor Garcetti, who has been really helpful yes. in, the only, in writing a letter to the AQMD saying, you need to request a recirculation of this draft environmental impact report because it's incomplete. On purpose, they left out many very significant issues, such as what are they going to store in eight humongous storage tanks with capacity of over 3.4 million barrels. Wow. They are not telling us what they're going to store there. However, to their investors, they have uh, publicly stated that 
they are going to start switching to what they call, you know, more advantage. They call it advantage crude, which are cheaper, more polluting crudes because they contain more sulfur. And sulfur deteriorates the pipes. That's why we have seen accidents such as the one that happened in 2014 uh, or a little over two years ago in the she- at the Chevron refinery in Richmond, which, right, which uh, the, uh, the, the sulfur, uh, over time, it decomposes the pipeline. And the refineries are always cutting corners right. in we- investing in maintenance. They just patch it up and let it continue until it's just like if you have a car leaking and you just run it until it stops. That's what refineries do, and they put in danger first the workers and then the nearby communities. And thus, the regulators know about all these uh, violations, and they continue to allow them to, uh, to operate. It is a shame that we not only have to be fighting against the polluters, but we have to be fighting against the regulators so that they can do their job. Exactly, exactly. Well, I, what I will do is allow for, uh, put a, post a link to your AQMD sort of form letter to Wayne Nastry, the executive officer of South Coast AQMD. And, let, and uh, ask, ask for a recirculation of the draft environmental impact yeah. report regarding the Tesoro merger to include everything. And even if you don't live in the district of Wilmington, people can say, this will affect me because it will increase climate change. There will be more methane. There will be more CO2 emission. There is problem in transportation. There is problem of where this material is being extracted. That's why we're seeing so many calamities in the weather. So we all should care about not putting any more carbon in, in the air. Well, as I read about citizens groups that object to wind turbines, which have a very benign kind of impact on their communities compared to what's going on here. As I read about the Alzheimer's Association connecting these kinds of particulates that you're exposed to immediately, that those particulates factor in a person's predisposition toward dementia's onset, that it seems like you must have a great deal of of people to coalesce with. We just need to make sure that the word gets out today. And I want to wrap this, though, and thank you, Alisa Rivera, for being on the show today. And let me give my uh, contact information. My name is Alicia, A-L-I-C-I-A, at C-B-E-C-A-L dot O-R-G. And the site for my organization, again, is www.cbecall.org. Please visit us and support us. And thank you for having me on. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm so glad you could make the time. I know you're, I could hear some phone going off, and I know you're pressed into all sorts of places. So I don't know what the deadline is, but when I get the deadline from you, I'll put that also in the podcast summary so people can act on that right we away. We are expecting the deadline. We don't know when it will be. Okay. And the only reason why we haven't heard about it yet is because of Mayor Garcetti's letters to AQMD. So that's, that's, been, hold, that's been holding them. But okay. it could come any time. So thank you so much, Alicia Rivera, for being on the show. On She's with Community for Better Environment and a laser-like focus, as I said, on the Tesoro Refinery. Good luck and thanks for your time. Thank you. Okay, that was Alicia Rivera, as I said, with Community for Better Environment. That's my wrap today. The, tonight, the president addresses a joint session of Congress, and I recommend we all listen in and listen in carefully. Key notes, because they might be a primary resource you're going to be going back to later. Next week, we'll hear from Tina Scholl, who wears a couple of hats. She's a history lecturer at UCI. That's one hat. However, we'll talk about the second one, her work with the Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, known as CIVIC. With immigration policy taking new forms, Tina will give us a closer look. Jean Shepard, a UCI professor of gender and sexuality studies, out with a new brand book she's going to talk about. It's entitled Moving Performances. 
divas, iconicity, and remembering the modern stage. She'll reprise early 20th century greats, Ada Overton Walker, Loa Fuller, Libby Holman, and Josephine Baker. You know, the Beyonce's and Janelle Monet's of earlier days. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye.